what are the three marks of the church? Yeah. So we have doctrine, the ordinance or the sacraments, and we have discipline. Discipline is the preservation of the pure doctrine and the purity in the church. It's also a preservation in many ways of over the ordinances. The Belgic Confession says this, and I want us to think about this. Belgic Confession says, if the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in punishing sin, hereby the true church may certainly be made known, from which no man has a right to separate himself. It's interesting because church discipline is rarely practiced today. In fact, it's, it's almost disappeared from churches. Oftentimes I'll ask, has anyone ever been through the process of a church discipline? Through church discipline. And I, I rarely get people to say, yes, we've been through this before. Um, and I doubt it's because the churches we've been to have been just so perfect and had no problems in them. Um, now, church purity is recognized two different ways, and, and discipline is, is the means of keeping it. And we see church purity in these two different ways, as doctrine and holiness. <clears throat> doctrine and holiness is, is how we see the church being pure. Because remember, the first mark of the church is that pure doctrine. So if the, the doctrine is not pure... Uh, then, then there's an, a problem with the purity of the church. And likewise, if those that are in the church are not living according and living out of the doctrine that they profess, the church is also uh, not pure. There's two different types of discipline. There's formative discipline. Right now, all of us sitting in here are under formative discipline myself included. This is formative discipline. Jesus says this, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is formative discipline. Whenever we come under the teaching of the Word of God, we are being disciplined by God's Word. We are being taught by God's Word. And it is forming us, it is shaping us in the hope that we don't ever have to move over to corrective discipline. So the connection is this, is formative discipline has to constantly be taking place, and that is the teaching of God's Word. And all the different various means that we do that in, that is that formative discipline. We think of that in a very positive sense, right? That as we sit under the teaching of the Word of God, it shapes us, and we learn about it. But then there's also corrective discipline. Corrective discipline is that discipline that's often avoided, that's uncomfortable, that's not fun. A couple of things that I want to start off with to think about before we get into a text of Scripture is this. In order for corrective church discipline to take place, it is assumed that there is a church. Obvious, right? 
Really profound, Rob. <laughs> but it's identifiable around a common confession. A common confession. Common profession of Christ. The second thing is there is assumed some means of identity that makes up the church. In other words, we know who's in the church and who's not in the church. Does that make sense? So there's a, we're united by a common profession. We say we believe this, but then there's also we know who is who within the church. That has to be the case. For instance, I can't go and practice <laughs> church discipline against a guy on the street that I don't know, but I see sinning. It has to be within the church. They have to be identified with the church somehow. How do we do that? Membership? Yeah. Through membership is how that takes place. Third, there is a fellowship. This is important. There is a fellowship that has transcended just a knowledge of one another. Meaning this, the membership where discipline takes place, the relationships in that have to be more than just high on Sunday morning, and then I have no uh, part of your life the rest of the week. It assumes that there's actually a life lived together within the church where we have practiced how to live with one another, and we have moved from merely just being acquaintances that have joined the same church, but have entered into a covenant contract with one another of mutual accountability and exhortation with one another. So in other words, if we want that idea of that mark of the church of discipline being in place, we, we've got to get to know one another. Because if I, if I don't know you or you don't know me, you won't ever know if I need to be held accountable on something. If I just come in and then check out as fast as I can, I won't ever give you the opportunity then. So in other words, as we come together, we come together as a family. We're uh, fellowshipping with one another. We're getting to know one another. Next thing is this. We want to recognize that in the church, you can have those that have fallen in the church, that are unregenerate, and those that have fallen in the church that are regenerate. Let me just say what I mean by that, is in the church, you can have someone that has professed Christ, has followed through with baptism, but may not truly know Jesus. In fact, you see that in John. They were of us, and they, in 1 John, they were of us, but they were not part of us. But then you can have those that are fallen, and fallen in a big way, and are believers. And actually, Jesus gives us a guide to how we discern that. So, Let's look at the teaching of the church, Matthew 16. I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. And <clears throat> as I'm talking about church discipline, if you've got a question, 
Just ask me. Or if there's like some scenario, what about this? I'm going to try to cover some of those scenarios, but I can't think of them all. So if, if you think of one that you have a question on, please ask. It will benefit everyone. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. This is the first place in the Gospels that the word church is, is used. And who uses it? Christ uses it. This is what he says about the church. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, in many ways... Peter is, in fact, the first part of the foundation of the church. You think about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, where it says that the apostles are what? The foundation of the church. Who was the foremost apostle in the first part of the book of Acts? Who's it centered on? Peter's preaching. So, we see that in many ways, the church was established through Peter. Think about the progression. The first establishment of the church in Jerusalem takes place on what day? Pentecost. Who's preaching? Peter's preaching. And then you see the Samaritan evangelism take place by Philip. But then after Philip has evangelized the Samaritans, the church of Jerusalem can't believe it, so who do they send there to check it out? Not a trick question. Peter! Peter goes there. Who's the first to evangelize to a Gentile? Peter. So you see the outward growth of the church happens through Peter. Now, there's a lot of debate about what this means. Does this mean Peter? This is taken to mean by in, in, in Roman Catholicism that Peter was the foundation of the church and, and like the first pope. And he is the established person, and there's this long lineage that stems from Peter. You, you can't get that from this text. But you can see that Peter was promised to be that foundation in which the church grew through him. And what was the profession? Look what he says. He says, Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, something interesting about this passage is that Jesus says it's his church, that Jesus will build it, and Jesus will protect it. But then he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, hang on to that, because when we get to Matthew 18, which directly deals with with discipline, that same phrase is used. And so what this means most likely is binding is that which is brought against a sinner. When the church comes to a sinner and confronts that sinner, it comes with the authority of heaven. Now because of church abuse that we have seen, that could make us feel uncomfortable, right? Well, Jesus is teaching this, that when the church comes and binds something, heaven affirms it. Now, that doesn't mean 
that the church enabled something for heaven to do or that the church could get something wrong and heaven says yes to it. No, it is when we are following Christ's words and being led by the Spirit, our decisions are going to be confirmed in heaven. That's the whole point. Loosing. Binding is holding that against the sinner. Loosing refers to the forgiveness that is brought to the sinner. So hold on to that. Go over to Matthew 18 now. You are all familiar with this passage of Scripture. If your brother sins against you, you go tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, a couple of things about this. I think that this could be abused in two ways. One way is, like, let's just say I'm annoyed by someone, and I confront them by that. That's not what Jesus is talking about. I think Jesus would say, just get over it. He says his fault. Show him his fault, which means it's some sort of provable sin that has taken place. And that idea behind it is expose it to them, something that had been committed. Now, this is to happen between you and him alone. So, naturally then, if someone sins against me and I go to someone else about that, what have I then committed? I've committed sin against my brother that I'm saying committed sin against me. And so we have to always be careful. It's to go to them and go to them alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the whole entire purpose of going to them is what? For condemnation or something else? Restoration. Yeah, it's not to condemn them, but it's, it's for that idea of restoration. But I want you to notice something else to this. Go and tell him his fault is in the imperative mood. What does that mean to say that it is in the imperative mood? This is a command. Pop quiz. Peter. <laughs> are, we, are we allowed to are, are we allowed to break commands? Are we free to disregard commands? So that means this is what upon all of us is binding upon all of us. There's, there's, there's a, a binding law that is upon us that if someone sins against us, again, this is not those uh, little things that annoy us that sometimes happen. Uh, otherwise, people would be coming to me every day. But it is, it is this. Is there some sort of sin that has taken place against someone? We are commanded by Christ to go to them. So it's not an option. When we disobey one of God's commands, what are we doing? We're sinning. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? It's pretty heavy. So, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother, but what if he doesn't? Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, 
that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, how long do you wait between verse 15 and verse 16? We're not told, right? Wisdom takes wisdom because I know from my own experience at times when someone's confronted me with something, it might take a day or two before I'm like, yeah, they were right. Because we have something inside of us, what's that called? Pride. Yeah, so we don't like it. Um, so a lot of times we, we might not respond the right way And so I I think you have to use wisdom. You have to show grace to that person. Give them time on it, in other words. Now, we're going to see that there's some situations you don't give time. Actually, you skip a lot of this process and you go straight to the church. Now, it says there's to be witnesses. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 19, it describes the witness process which is very helpful. So Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of a wrongdoing, Then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest, and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he is meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, I want you to think about this. In the Old Covenant setup, This idea of witnesses was in what setting, according to this text here? It's a court of law. When sin takes place in the New Covenant community, what's the setting? The church. So you see how that judicial aspect of the law now is applied Not in the civil realm, although we see that actually applicable in the civil realm, but it's applied within the church itself. Now, there's something about a witness that we have to recognize about this, and the words that Jesus uses guides us in this. Notice what it says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So that assumes that the people that are called into witness do something. In other words, if someone sins against me and I, I confront that person privately and then I and they don't respond, they don't listen to me, I go and grab two other people and said, you know what they did? They did this. Let's go and confront them. I'm not doing what Jesus told us to do. Jesus doesn't tell us to do that. Jesus says to bring witnesses that have looked at the evidence and come to the table and are able to give witness to the evidence. In other words, the witnesses have to be unbiased, 
and they have to be about the truth, they themselves have to measure and weigh the evidence before them in order to be a witness on the witness stand. So in other words, when we go and grab two or three more witnesses, we're not building a coalition to prove our point against our brother or sister. We're actually all about one thing, and that is the truth. So we have to be very careful. So when we go to that second step, we need to be very careful in who it is that we choose to go with us. We want to choose a mature believer that can put on the blindfold of justice. That's what we want. In Matthew or in Proverbs 18:13, we have some guidance why this is necessary. Proverbs 18.13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And then in verse 17, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines it. So the people that come in as witnesses actually have to be part of that investigation. This also means that if we bring a charge against our brother or sister, we better make sure it's actually a sin that they have committed that needs to be confronted. So this is not something that we are to take lightly, but we are to take with the uh, utmost gravity in it. And so there has to be an unbiased judge. You see this in Exodus 23, verse 8. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Now, I don't think you probably see anyone bribing anyone financially, but people might bribe someone in other ways. Influence. Why this is so important at this point in terms of the establishment of evidence and witnesses is because the church is the pillar and buttress of what? Of truth. So in areas of sin and exposing sin, we we have to first and foremost be about truth. Now, If he doesn't listen to the two or three witnesses, the first part of verse 17 says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So you take it before the church. If the offending party ignores the witnesses, they are to be brought before the church. Now this is the local church. It is done within the local church. It is where one has been identified as a covenant partner. And they are in relation with one another. So in other words, if someone is sinning in another church, that church needs to deal with it. They won't be brought before our church. It's it's their, their own church that they are to be brought before. The instructions are not to bring someone before another church, but before their own local church where they are members. This brings up a question, though. Because we all have friends that are Christians that are not members of this church, what if they sin against me? Well, you follow the same process. Except for take it before the church, you can't actually take them before your church. And what you could do is you can go to the elders of that church and say, look, 
This is what's going on. But at that point, you can't do anything. That church has to make that decision of what they're going to do at that point. But you, they, they have no, like I have no authority in someone else's church. And there's not another pastor that has any authority in this church. But another pastor could come to me or I could go to another pastor and talk to them. Now the second part, this is the tough one. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now this is the final step. And notice now, it's the step is not trying to convince them of their sin, but the, the, the step is actually a judgment upon them. What does it mean to be a Gentile and a tax collector coming from Jesus' lips in the first century? Were tax collectors and Gentiles believers? It's to say, I can no longer, the church is saying this, the church is collectively saying this, we are making the judgment, we can no longer trust your profession of faith. Now we might think, wait, we can't judge another person's salvation. Well, we don't know what's in their heart, but we can deal with the fruit that's coming out of their heart, and Jesus says, we can no longer trust it. That sounds very harsh, but that's what Jesus commands us to do. You think of it like this, as in that final step, that might be the very thing that is needed to awaken the person from their sin and come back and say, I, I, I blew it. And then what do you do? You, you chastise them? No. You welcome them in and you move on. You move on. So does that mean when we say, because this is oftentimes looked at excommunication, we want to know what excommunication means, cut off from communion. Do we want this person that's in sin to come to our worship service? Yes. Because what will they hear? They will hear the gospel. And so that's the whole point. You don't just bar them from coming to church because you would want them to hear. But, as you'll see in 1 Corinthians 5.11, uh, there are times where you have to cut off fellowship with the unrepentant sinner. That's hard to do, but that's what Jesus calls us to do. Now notice what he goes back on. This, now this is going to relate why we started in, verse six, in chapter 16. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This, this is commonly used as like when we pray that Jesus is with us, and that's absolutely true, but when Jesus says these words, he's speaking in the context of the church, judicially saying, we no longer trust this person's profession of faith. And Jesus is there with the church when they have done that according to his word. And there has been true establishment of sin, 
and you've gone through this process as Jesus commands, Jesus says, where there's an agreement in this, I'm there with you. So, if this is so true, if this is a mark of the church, isn't it seem strange that it's rarely practiced? Think about a couple of verses with me. I'm going to go through these really quickly. You don't have to turn there because I'm going to I'm going to go through them fairly quick. But in Romans chapter 16, in verses 17 and 18, Paul's writing, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. He says, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. And so the idea of avoid them, watch them, means that you have some sort of interaction with them. So there would be those that might, might creep in. 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 3, verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Look what he says. Keep away from that person. Verses 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. In 2 Timothy, in chapter 3, we read this in verses 1 through 5. But understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Now, if we wanted to know, like, Okay, what is a sin worthy of confronting someone? Paul just gave us a list. It's not an exhaustive list. It's not meant to be. We're not to be legalists where we're checking every mark on people. Titus chapter 3, verse 10 says, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinfully is self-condemned. Notice Paul does not say, take this person before the church. He says a person that creates division, you warn them, and you warn them again, and you have nothing to do with them. Yeah. Sure, I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think that makes sense to me. Yeah, that's a good question. Now, 1 Corinthians 5. If you, let's, let's run through this together. This is an example where we don't see steps in place. We see going straight to kick them out and hand them over to Satan. And so this could be relevant in our day and age. 
says this in verse 1, It is actually recorded, reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, some people say, well, it assumes that the process Jesus warns of has taken place. I don't think so, because he says you're proud. You ought to be ashamed. It means there hasn't been a confrontation. What does he say in this situation? What do you do? You go straight, when there was this moral perversion that took place, remove them. He says, verse 3, For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, there's that word assembled, so important for the nature of the church. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now listen to his reasoning. He says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You hand him over to Satan, which is to to say, you're no longer under the authority of this church. You're under the authority of Satan. That's going straight to that final point that Jesus says, as you bring them before the church and you tell them before the church, you, we are, you, we no longer recognize your profession of faith. You are under the authority of Satan now. You're not under our authority. He goes on in verse nine. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral per- people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now. I am writing you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person among you. Now remember when we were reading in Deuteronomy that the judicial law was that you bring them before the judge, and then the judge renders a judgment on them, and you expel the person from you. So that judicial law that was given by Moses now is applied within the confines of the church through church discipline. That the church actually renders this judgment that is to take place. Now, if you read our statement of faith on marriage and human sexuality. It's point number 19 in our statement of faith. I would encourage you to read it. Paul's instructions are so incredibly relevant to 2022 with all the things that we're facing in our world right now. It would be good for us to be familiar with this passage and pray that it's never um, an issue in our church. Now, One final form of discipline. What about the pastor? Well, you you actually treat the pastor the same way because the pastor is first and foremost a member of the church. The pastor is in covenant community with you. I, I think that sometimes that gets missed, and it shouldn't. It shouldn't, because when it comes down to the final authority in the judgment that took place, was it the elders? 
No, it was the church. The church rendered the final judgment in all of those cases. It was the church that did it. It's not the, it's not the elders. So, 1 Timothy 5.19. Do not admit a charge um, against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, if there is a charge to be brought against an elder, you need to have the evidence and you need to have witnesses to that. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In other words, if an elder is in sin, they need to be rebuked publicly. It needs to be a rebuke of publicly. So you go and tell them privately if they continue to persist, the elder then needs to be brought before the congregation and needs to be charged before the congregation. No, no, I, I, no, I, it doesn't. I, I think that what you have here is is a, a public thing that's taking place within the church. Um, <clears throat> no, that's a that's a great question. Um, I in the church, a charge cannot be established by against an elder without that evidence and the witnesses. So that's not precluding necessarily going to someone that's in sin and confronting them. Yeah, yeah, that's great. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, this is 21, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Now that, that word charge in verse 19 is that of a legal proceeding. Don't bring a legal proceeding against them without the evidence um, of two or three witnesses. Okay, that is a very quick New Testament overview and also showing some of the judicial law of the Mosaic Code to see how it guides us within the church on discipline. Does anyone have questions? beginning you discussed Peter and being the rock. Yeah. The way I interpreted that, and I've I've seen in the past, is the way it's worded, it's actually referring to the verses leading up to that word, where he claims his deity, and it's upon that rock of his deity. The the confession. The problem is, as Jesus says to Peter, that he is the rock. Is that how it's worded? I thought it said upon this rock. Yeah. He's saying upon you, he says upon this rock. Right. my understanding is it was referencing the verses just prior. So Peter is big rock, and then the rock that he uses here is that small rock. I believe it is upon Peter and his confession. Does that, that make sense? Upon, upon Peter himself or upon Peter's confession of Christ's deity? Both. And, and here's why. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, it says this, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This is speaking of the church. And Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So when it's not incorrect to say, or doesn't diminish Christ in any way, to say that the foundation of the church is the apostles. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, good question. 
Absolutely. Christ is the chief cornerstone. In, yeah. in Matthew 18, it references the, um, the tax collectors. Yes. And I thought that was quite humorous that it was written by Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, did he like slink into the shadows when Christ said that? I think, he was, I think the apostles were very self-aware after Pentecost. <laughs> yeah. Good question. Any, any other questions? Okay. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you are our holy God, that you have called your church out of darkness to walk in light. And so by your grace, may we walk in that light. May we be a pure church here in Linden, both in doctrine and in our in our daily walk. Father, we know that discipline is a, is a tough subject. Uh, it's an uncomfortable one at times, but uh, it comes from the lips of Jesus here. And so we pray that by your grace, we would practice that, but we, we also pray by your grace that it wouldn't have to be something that's practiced. But give us courage when we need to. We do pray, Father, that as we depart from here, uh, that you would bless our evening, give us a good night's rest. We pray for when we gather uh, this coming Lord's Day to worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.